The following sermon is by a guest speaker at Community Church in Edwardsburg, Michigan. If you've never visited us at Community Church, we invite you to join us at 28647 US 12 West in Edwardsburg. We hope you are encouraged by the following message. If you didn't notice, Pastor Dan is not here today. He is actually not feeling well, and I, I spoke to him this morning. He's doing okay. But Tyler has agreed to fill in for him today. Tyler is a teaching pastor, is that correct, over at Gospel City, something like that? Maybe you can elaborate a little bit more. But he is going to fill in for Pastor Dan today, and so I'd like to welcome Tyler up here. Let's give him a nice warm welcome this morning. Thank you for coming. Well, good morning, guys. If you have your Bibles, let me encourage you to find your way to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, as uh, Josh said, I am uh, one of the pastors at Gospel City Church right down the road. Grateful to be uh, here this morning, opening up God's Word to see what it has to say to us here at Community Church in Edwardsburg. Um, I'm our pastor of men's and young adult discipleship at Gospel City, and uh, it's not often that I get to stand behind this table. I've been here a few times, and I'm grateful each and every time I come to be with you and to help Pastor Dan, whenever I have the opportunity. So Acts chapter 8, we're going to be in verses 9 through 25 this morning, and I hope you found your way there in your copy of God's Word, and this is what it has to say. Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 9. It says, But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. And they all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Simon had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before the Lord. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Praise the Lord. Right, this is our text for this morning, and as we begin to look at this text, I wonder if, before we jump in, if you could journey back with me to the year 1991. How many of you remember the year of our Lord, 1991? Anybody? Right? Journey back with me. I've, I've been married now for 13 years, so obviously not married in 91, but my wife grew up in Rochester, New York. Now, not much there, not much happening in the town of Rochester, except... 
the Buffalo Bills. And in 1991, if you'll recall, the country's in the midst of the first Gulf War. There's chaos and tumult. But in January of 1991, the 27th to be exact, it was an evening that would live in infamy in the mind of my wife. As a five-year-old young lady, she's there at her church viewing what would be the first of four consecutive Super Bowl appearances for the Buffalo Bills. Do you guys remember the golden era of NFL football, right? Where the pads were bigger than the men and the images on the, like the helmet. It was the old throwback retro Buffalo Bills. And the Bills had done what they always had done in the early 90s, had given great promise, had advanced greatly, and they had come back from behind and Jim Kelly's at the helm and he's leading the Bills through the playoffs and they make it to the pinnacle of footballery, right? The 1991 Super Bowl. Now, I know many of you aren't probably as excited about that as my wife was as a five-year-old, 35-pound girl, but she was on cloud nine. She's sitting there watching the Buffalo Bills play the New York Giants and Jim Kelly's at the helm and they're running this no huddle offense and they come out against the Giants and they're hitting them, they're hitting them, they're hitting them, they're scoring, they're scoring, they're scoring and they head in to halftime with a lead. And then it happened. Do you guys know what happened? The second half, they did lose. But the second half happens, right? And the Giants come out, they make some changes, and when the dust settles and the teams exit the field, the Bills lose 19-20 to 20 against the New York. Don't, it's the Bills. They always lose, right? It was the first of four. They have the record for the most consecutive Super Bowl appearances in and lost four in a row. And at that moment, my wife sitting on her dad's Legs, the sting of defeat pierces from the tube TV into her heart and she weeps uncontrollably. Like just uncontrollably, just weeping. To this day, she still remembers that fateful moment on January 27th, 1991. It's the weirdest thing in her mind, right? And even to today, she still represents the Bills well. If you ever see a Toyota Sienna minivan driving through town with a Buffalo Bills decal plastered on it, guaranteed it's my wife. If you ever see little children wearing Buffalo Bills garbs, guaranteed, it's my children, right? She dresses my six-year-old daughter and nine-year-old son in jerseys to this day, right? She is so elated and so excited when the Bills advance, 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 and yet every single time they let her down. Every time. Even last year, I get a video of my wife jumping up and down in elation as the playoffs are happening, and then they lose to the Kansas City Chiefs. It's a great moment for me. It's not so good for my wife, right? When you think about the advancement of the Bills, when you consider what they had gone through and the buildup they had had and the journey that they've been on, when you think about that type of advancement, the reality is, is that at the end of the day, it still leads to a lack of satisfaction, and here in Acts chapter 8, what we're going to see this morning is we're going to see an advancement that's greater than a Lombardi trophy, an advancement that's greater than four consecutive Super Bowl appearances. We're going to see the gospel go from Jerusalem and Judea and bridge into this place called Samaria, where people that have never heard the good news of Jesus hear it, where the gospel has never been proclaimed is proclaimed where missionaries are advancing and going. Faithful disciples are taking the news of Jesus Christ and pushing it out to the world so that at some point in history there would be a church in Edwardsburg because of the obedience of someone named Philip 
in the first century to take the good news of Jesus and share it with those who had never heard it. The advance of the gospel is a beautiful thing. And when we look at the book of Acts, and as we think about the book of Acts, I want to put into your mind this image. It's an image of a bullseye with the center being the original 11 apostles in Acts chapter 1, when Jesus looks at them and says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. They're given this declaration in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. And they travel back to Jerusalem and they gather with 120 of their best friends in the upper room and they pray and they pray and they pray and the Holy Spirit comes and the church is born. That's the center of our bullseye. And they begin to proclaim the gospel and take the message from the center and they begin to go to Jerusalem. And if if you're a student of the Bible, if you've ever read the book of Acts, and what you see is thousands of people coming to know the Lord thousands of people responding in faith to the news of the gospel. But it doesn't stop in Jerusalem. These faithful 120 share the good news of Jesus. They share the beauty of the gospel. People are redeemed. Sin is repented of. Lives are transformed and changed because of the power of the Holy Spirit drawing men and women in the first century to himself. They go from Jerusalem and they advance to Judea. And they are on mission with the gospel. And here in Acts chapter eight, it's the first time the gospel is pushed out from Jerusalem, pushed out from Judea into Samaria. And ultimately, if you continue to progress through the book of Acts, you'll see the gospel go from Samaria to the ends of the world. Because people see the beauty of the gospel, experience the transformation that happens when we place our faith and trust in Christ alone and they're obedient to do what God has said. In fact, when you look at the book of Acts, in some part, the very first verse of Acts chapter 8, verse 1, is a step in fulfilling Acts chapter 1, verse 8. In Acts chapter 8, verse 1, what happens is this guy named Saul comes onto the scene and persecution breaks out against the church. It forces the church to go out and they begin to take the message of the gospel to the world and they begin to fulfill what Jesus has told them. And the reality is for us this morning as we look at Acts chapter 8 that there is, there has, and there always be, and there always will be advances in the gospel. So God has, God is, and God always will provide advances with the gospel. The reason why you're here this morning is because the gospel has advanced to you. The reason why this church is established in Edwardsburg, in this area of Michiana to impact Edwardsburg and Niles and Cass is because the gospel has advanced. So this morning as we look at our text, what we'll see simply is this. We'll see three gospel advances And then we'll ask ourselves three simple questions to help us advance the gospel in our context and our community. So the first advance we see is simply this, gospel advances always face opposition. Look at verses nine through 11. Luke is writing the book of Acts and he makes this transition and he says this, but there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. See, what happens here in Acts chapter 8 in the first eight verses is we see the gospel come into Samaria. Samaria. 
We see the towns and the villages paying attention to what Philip is saying to them in verse 6. We see unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice, coming out of many who are possessed and many who are paralyzed and lame are healed in verse 7 of chapter 8. And we see in verse 8 of chapter 8, great joy in response to the gospel. And the truth of the matter is, is that whenever the gospel advances, there will be opposition. Did you know that? Did you know that as a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ, when you have experienced the change the gospel has given you and you open your mouth to be obedient to what he has declared, there will always be opposition in your life. Here in Acts chapter 8, that opposition opposition is manifested in a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city. Elsewhere in scripture, we find out that this man's name is Simon Magus. How would you like to have that last name, right? As I think about that, I'm a big nickname guy. I'd call myself the Mag is what I would call myself. Uh, So if I'm Simon Magus, I'm walking through Samaria. Yo, what's up? The Mag's here to show you some tricks. And I'd begin to like do my thing. Maybe that's not you when you read the Bible. You should always put yourself in scripture. It's really fun. You should try it, right? So Simon Magus, we, we learn about him elsewhere in scripture. In fact, in other areas of scripture, we see that Simon Magus is known near and far, It's said that there was a statue erected in his honor in Rome with the inscription to the holy god Simon. Simon, by the way, is no JV player in Satan's army. Simon is a varsity level player engaging, deceiving, and leading the people of Samaria to hell. Do you see what Luke says? Simon had amazed the people of Samaria for years. When was the last time you guys were amazed? Every day. On Thanksgiving morning, I get up and around 9 a.m. I play football with a bunch of old men. So one time a year I do it. And every single year I am amazed that more of us don't go to the hospital. Right? <laughs> Just absolutely stunned. And then for the next five days, I'm picking my legs up to put them into my vehicle because I can barely move. I'm 35. I'm not that old, but I do it once a year and it just crushes my body, right? It amazes me. Here in Acts chapter eight, that word that we see, amaze, it carries with it this idea to cause to be astounded to such a degree as to nearly lose one's mental composure, Simon was doing phenomenal things. He had power and people saw the wonders he was doing so much so that they declared Simon, the mag, man, he is the power of God. They saw Simon as a God. And it could be said that whatever Simon says, the people of Samaria believed. Simon has bewitching them He has done it for years. He's created a cult following. He was able to, whether by sleight of hand or demonic influence, perform magic that amazed these people. And with this introduction of Simon, this Voldemort-type character into the story of Acts, you see one of the most sly, cunning ways that Satan is trying to subvert what God is doing through the church. And I wonder, I wonder if that type of opposition still exists today. I think through the the opposition that faces you as a church when you stand upon the gospel as the message. I think about the opposition that might face some of you if you're a teacher, if you're desiring to lead your classroom from a godly perspective. 
I think of the seventh grade girl who has just come to know Jesus and she loves the Lord more than anything else. And I think about the reputation that she once had and now has in school and the maligning and the name calling that she might face. I think about the varsity level football player who's crushing it for the Eddies, who decides instead of partying, he's gonna invest in something like FCA. I think about the opposition that faces you as a faithful disciple, wherever you might be. The reality is, is that opposition exists. Opposition comes when we are bold and stand upon the truth of Scripture. Wherever the gospel takes ground, there will always be opposition. But please hear me. When you face opposition, whether you're that seventh grade girl or that teacher or that athlete or whoever you might be, whenever you face opposition because of the gospel, realize that your enemy isn't the person standing in front of you. Your enemy isn't a political party. It's not a side of town. It's not a different race or ethnicity. It's not a culture. Your enemy is Satan. And as he's manifesting the opposition against you, please, please, please face that opposition well. We see the gospel being opposed here in Acts chapter eight and the reality is as disciples of Jesus Christ, what sets us apart from those around us when we face opposition, what sets us apart isn't that we power up in our own strength. It isn't that we're more mean or more deceitful. It's not what we do in ourselves. What sets us apart as faithful disciples of Jesus is this simple question. How do I respond to those who oppose the gospel? So let me ask you, community, how do you respond? How do you respond to your neighbors who care less about Jesus than you do? How do you respond to those coworkers who would rather drag the church through the mud than consider joining you at your dinner table on Christmas Eve? How do you respond in school or in the classroom as a college student when your professor declares God's dead and to believe in it is a farce? How do you respond to those who oppose the gospel? Do you power up in your own strength? Or, as Psalm 1 would declare, do you root yourself like a tree planted next to streams of living water? Or as John 15 would say, do you abide in the vine, which is Jesus? How do you respond? Remember, those that are opposing you, they're opposing you because they've been deceived by the greatest deceiver of all time. They aren't your enemy. And we shouldn't treat them as such. Your enemy is Satan, and Paul declares in 1 Corinthians that the weapons of this battle are not physical in nature. They are spiritual, and the reality is there's a battle that's been waging for millennia before you were born. There's a battle that's raging today, and if the Lord tarries, there will be a battle that rages until you are long dead. There will be opposition. How do you respond? Simon Magus, he had amazed the Samaritans for years. His lies and deceit had led countless to believe in something false that gave no assurance. And the only remedy to such a malfeasance in clarity is clarity to the gospel. The only remedy to somebody lying and deceiving is clarity in the gospel, which brings us to our second advance. Gospel advances require clarity in the gospel message. Look at verses 12 and 13. 
But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Luke transitions in the story from Simon to Philip, and we begin to see the message that Philip proclaims. Do you notice the gospel message that Philip proclaims? It's a message of clarity. He preaches two things, the good news about the kingdom of God and the good news about the name of Jesus Christ. And, and if you're paying attention in the text, you feel this tension that's happening. This tension between light and dark, good and bad, truth and lies. You feel the tension between Simon, the mag, and Philip, the faithful, committed disciple. You feel this tension because the messages that they're proclaiming are at odds with each other. And the Samaritans, gosh, the Samaritans, they are finding new life in Jesus. They're finding hope in the gospel. They're being freed from the bondage of sin. They are coming into, for the very first time, a relationship with the God of the universe. There's hope, there's grace, there's love, there's truth, there's everything that is contained in the beauty of the gospel message. And Philip, as he's proclaiming it, is doing it with such clarity. Do you like clarity? I think all of us like clarity in our day-to-day lives, right? I don't know, husbands, if your wife has ever sent you to the grocery store without a list. That's a bad day, right? Even when my wife sends me with a list, I come back with twice as much as was on the list, right? And she's given me clarity. But I think we all like clarity. We like clarity in our jobs. It's good to know when you walk into work what they are expecting of you. We like clarity in school. It's good to know what you need to do to get a good grade. But do you know what lacks clarity in our culture? Furniture instructions. Y'all know it's true. Right? Have you ever gotten a nightstand and 463 steps to put it together and they give you the small wrench that breaks halfway through and then they say don't use power tools but when you do it breaks? Do you guys know this? Am I the only one? And there's no words, it's just pictures and the pictures don't make any sense. Do you know who's the worst at it? It's our Nordic friends, those at Ikea. They are the absolute worst. I love Norway, I think, or Sweden, or wherever they're from. I have no idea. I hate their stores, right? Hey, yes, praise Jesus. Some of you are going to get something from Ikea for Christmas, and you're going to go, what was that guy's name? He hates this, doesn't he? Yes, yes, I do, right? And you're on step 453 out of 454, and you finally finish, and there's 20 screws left over, and you go, how is this going to stand? And it doesn't, and it breaks a week later. Anyways, I'm just, this isn't about Ikea. That's not what this is about. This is about Jesus. It lacks clarity. And some of you out there are going, man, Tyler, but if they had words, it would be even more confusing. I know, I'm an idiot. What I love about what happens here in Acts chapter eight is that Philip isn't a Nordic Ikea salesman. He's not giving you 483 steps to repent of your sins and come to Jesus. He's giving you two. He's preaching to the Samaritans the good news about the kingdom of God. And he's preaching to the Samaritans the good news about the name of Jesus Christ. He's doing it with such clarity, with such beauty that it's bringing life to those who had been dead. It's bringing hope to those that were hopeless. A clear proclamation of the gospel. It gives dirty, rotten sinners like you and it gives dirty, rotten sinners like me the opportunity to respond to confession, repentance, and faith. 
And as you see what Philip is doing here in Acts chapter 8, what you'll see is you'll see four benchmarks of a clear gospel presentation. You'll see Philip proclaim that God is holy, that his kingdom is not of this world, that he is not like you and like me, amen? And if God is like you and like me, then he's not a God worth serving. But that's not who God is. God is holy. His kingdom is not of this world. He is perfect, sinless, and altogether righteous and just. But somehow, man, you and I, created in God's image, but marred by sin, fractured in our relationship with him, are at odds with him. Sin has bound us like it's bound the Samaritans. Sin has deceived us like Simon Magus has deceived the Samaritans. We live a life separated from God from birth until we encounter the gospel. And when we realize our sinfulness, we have this choice. We have this choice because we've seen Jesus Christ as our Redeemer. Do you see it in Acts chapter 8? It's about the good news of the kingdom and the good news of the name of Jesus Christ, the only one who could redeem you from your sins. Christ, the perfect sinless son of God, the remedy to bridge the gap between me, between you, and a perfect holy God. Without Christ, we have no hope. Without Christ, we have no bridge. Without Christ, we have nothing. Yet because Jesus is God's son, because Jesus was sinless, because he, and still is sinless, because Jesus is the perfect sacrifice for our sins, we have the opportunity to have peace and a reconciled relationship with our creator if we repent and believe. Do you wanna know what gave the Samaritans hope? It wasn't Simon Magus. It wasn't a moral life. It wasn't the news, the weather, or whatever else they might be focused on. What gave the Samaritans hope, life, and freedom was the beauty of the gospel. That God is holy, man is sinful. Christ is your redeemer. And the invitation that was given to the Samaritans is the invitation given to you this morning. Oh, that you would repent and believe. Repent and believe. This morning, if we just hit pause for a second and and reflect on the fact that gospel advances, they require clarity in the gospel message. And if you're a disciple of Jesus this morning, if you've repented of your sins and placed your faith and trust in Christ alone, then realize that you've done that only because somebody proclaimed the gospel, preached the gospel with clarity to you. Somebody was faithful to open their mouths and say something to you that the Holy Spirit used to draw you to himself. They were clear in the gospel message. So let's ask this question. If gospel advances require clarity in the gospel message, ask the question, what am I preaching? What am I preaching? Whether you're a mom with kids at home and you're pulling your hair out because they flushed a dish rag down the toilet for the 15th time that week, or you're a factory worker, or you're a farmer, or you're a student, or you're retired, whatever you might be in this present moment, realize that each and every day you preach something. Your family knows it, your friends know it, your coworkers know it. Whenever you open your mouth, there is a message that falls upon your lips. Can I ask you, what is it that you're preaching? What is it that you're leveraging and using your time to communicate? What message falls upon your lips?
when you're pressed, when you're hurt, when you're struggling, when you're anxious, when you're nervous, when you're joyous, when you're excited, what is it that falls upon your lips? What message are you proclaiming? The truth of the matter is, is that you all have a platform, each and every one of you, wherever you are. God has placed you there for a specific reason, for a specific purpose. He has given you relationships. He has given you an opportunity. And if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, you have an opportunity to preach with clarity the message of the gospel. And if you want to see the gospel advance in Michiana, if you want to see the gospel advance in Edwardsburg, in Niles, in your community, on your street, with your family, then realize you are the tool God has given for that specific moment. You should proclaim the gospel with clarity. You have an active role if you're a disciple of Jesus to play in advancing the gospel message from whatever platform you've been given. So the question is, what are you preaching? What are you preaching? The third advance we see in our text is simply this. Gospel advances are evidenced by lives filled with the Holy Spirit. Notice verses 14 through 17. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. I love this because news of this new missionary endeavor has reached the ears of the church in Jerusalem and they dispatched Peter and John, kind of like the OG varsity level apostles. Do you remember them, right? So Peter and John, the ones that mere, their mere shadow falling on people in Jerusalem would heal them. Like Peter and John, the ones that preach and proclaim the good news. Peter, the one that was responsible for proclaiming the first gospel message in Acts chapter two. That's who the church dispatches. They have dispatched them to Samaria. And remember that Peter and John knew that the message of the gospel, that the establishment of the church in God's eyes was always a global thing. Remember Acts chapter one, verse eight. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Here, Peter and John, they come to experience and unify this new church that God is establishing in Samaria. In fact, here in Acts chapter 8, this experience with the Samaritans has often been called the Samaritan Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes upon them much like it did to Peter and John in Acts chapter 2. Now, if you're a student of God's word, which I know you are, then as you look at this text, you should be asking the question, here in our text as to why Peter and John, when they came, why was it that God used them to bring the Holy Spirit? So let's just hit pause again on preaching, step into the classroom. I promise it's gonna be fun. It's not like your middle school classroom. Hopefully, hopefully I'm not like that. I hope I'm a little bit more exciting than your middle school. If you're a middle school teacher, praise the Lord for you. I probably just offended you. <laughs> this is what happens when I don't follow my notes. What you see here in our passage is that Peter and John, when they arrive in Samaria, they pray that they might receive the Holy Spirit for he had not yet fallen on them and they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Spirit. So we should be asking the question as students of God's word, why does this happen? And does it happen like this today? So again, gospel advances are evidenced by lives filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, how does the Holy Spirit come? 
So here in Acts chapter 8, it comes a specific way, but what we're going to do here in a moment is just take a pause and we're going to look at how the Holy Spirit manifests himself throughout Acts and the New Testament. And what we'll see is simply this, that in Acts 8, Acts 8 is not the usual pattern. Like the reason why God uses Peter and John to bring the Holy Spirit to the church in Samaria is to unify the church. Because recall that Peter and John, staunch Jews, hated the Samaritans. Culturally, they were different. Ideologically, they were different. Locationally, they were different. Everything about them was different. They hated one another. So Peter and John go, and the gift of the Holy Spirit's given. Acts 8's not the usual pattern. Realize, too, that throughout the rest of the book of Acts and within the New Testament in general, really throughout the whole Bible, the Spirit's closely joined to conversion, baptism, and commitment to Jesus. It's closely joined to conversion, baptism, and commitment to Jesus. And third, realize that because the Holy Spirit is a part of the Trinity, he can do what he wants. It doesn't have to make sense to you, and there's no normal pattern. Sometimes we see the Spirit come by the laying on of hands. Sometimes in Scripture we see the Spirit preceding baptism. Sometimes we see the Spirit following baptism. The ultimate lesson that we learn The ultimate lesson that we learn is that the Holy Spirit cannot be tied down to any manipulative human scheme. That's why Peter responds as he does to Simon. You can't buy the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's freely given. The example we have from the rest of the New Testament, by the way, is that sinners hear the gospel, they believe, they receive the Spirit, and they're baptized. That's the predominant example that we have in the rest of the New Testament. So here within Acts chapter eight, this is a beautiful example of God unifying what would have been an easily divided church. Peter and John, chief apostles, are used by God to affirm this missionary effort, to affirm this endeavor. Their involvement demonstrates to the Samaritans that generations of hostility between Jew and Samaritan are now dead in Christ. And the believers in Samaria now are filled with the Holy Spirit. They are filled with something different than what they had been filling their lives with. Realize that the people in Samaria had spent their whole lives filling it with the likes of Simon Magus, believing lies and deceit from birth to encounter with Jesus. They had been filling their lives with substitute saviors. And the truth of the matter is, from the moment you were born to the moment you encounter Jesus, you filled your life with substitute saviors. I have a six-year-old daughter, I love her to death. Her name's Adelaide. I call her baby girl. Most of the people in our church don't know her real name because they all know her as baby girl. My six-year-old daughter is filling her heart with substitute saviors right now. Do you know that? Her substitute saviors look a lot like Barbie and pink unicorns. I mean, praise the Lord, it's like that and not something else, right? I can deal with Barbie and pink unicorns. But as she grows up and as you've grown up, Before Jesus, you filled your life with substitute saviors. And if you encounter the beauty of the gospel, then what happens is, is that you are now given something else to fill your life with. How do we do it though? Let's imagine for a second that, which by the way, whoever made the coffee, I appreciate you, right? Let's imagine that for some reason I had a cup of coffee and it was half full with decaf. Not sure why that would be the case, but let's just assume that I like decaf which is, I don't, especially in the morning. And let's say from birth to now, I have continually drank decaf each and every morning, expecting it to change me. 
and that, man, I am bought in to decaf coffee. Love it. Swiss water process. It's great. And then somebody introduces me to organic, single origin, South American or Central African fully caffeinated coffee, this black gold, right? And let's imagine that I take that carafe of black gold with my half cup of decaf and I pour it to the brim. Have I gotten rid of my decaf? No, I've created half-calf. That's, again, horrible. I don't know why you would do that. How do I get rid of the decaf? I continue to fill, right? And eventually, the new will replace the old. The same is true for you and your life. That before Christ, man, you're crushing that decaf coffee. You are believing it's satisfying. You are believing it is what you need for life. You are buying into the substitute saviors. And when you meet Jesus and you're filled with the Holy Spirit, then a beautiful thing happens. Your life is filled with something different. But for you as a disciple of Jesus, you need to continually fill your life. How do you do that? How do you fill your life so that this cup now overflows not with what doesn't hope bring hope not that not with what doesn't bring life not with what with doesn't bring joy peace and satisfaction but with the gospel how do you fill yourself up so that what overflows out of you is Jesus so the question we ask if gospel advances are evidenced by lies filled with the Holy Spirit the question we ask ourselves is what am I filling my life with what is it that I'm pouring into my cup What is it that I'm going to for satisfaction? And as a disciple of Jesus, know that your substitute saviors, they will come knocking at your door each and every day. And you will believe the lie occasionally that they bring satisfaction. You'll go back to Simon Magus. You'll go back to whatever it was that you put your hope in. What is it that we're filling our lives with? I would present to you as a church that as you begin to fill this cup with what lasts, I would present that we do that in four simple ways. might sound simple, but to begin with, I would begin by praying and asking the Holy Spirit to illuminate my heart to what's been revealed in Scripture. If I'm gonna fill my life with the gospel, I'm gonna begin with prayer. I'm gonna begin by asking him to show me what it is that he wants me to do. I'm gonna follow that up with praying consistently at work, at school, at home, on the drive, and at any other chance I get. Some of you are pressed and crushed most frequently at your jobs, in your school. In that moment, are you defaulting back to the substitute saviors that you filled your life with, or are you defaulting to your new identity in Jesus? Third, I would replace my old intakes with holy intakes. That could be anything from media consumption to how you spend your time. And if I'm gonna fill my cup with the beauty of Jesus, with the beauty of the gospel, then what I'm gonna need, I'm gonna need the people around me. I'm gonna need to surround myself with others who love God and love me enough to be able to look at me. And I don't, we don't know each other super well yet, but just realize I'm an idiot and I make a lot of mistakes. I don't know if that's you. That's probably not you. You guys are probably great, but I make a lot of mistakes. And I need the people around me that love me and love Jesus enough to say, Tyler, you're you're being a sinner right now. You're bringing shame to the name of Jesus and you need to repent. And those relationships are hard to come by. But man, I hope that as a church, you strive to have intentionally intrusive relationships for the gospel's sake.
people that love you enough to say, stop being a fool and start loving Jesus. That's what happens when we fill our lives, when we fill our cup, when we replace our old substitute saviors with what is now giving us life. In the rest of our text, we're gonna fly through it. We essentially see gospel advancement in technicolor. In verses 18 through 25, what we see is we see these three gospel advances we've just talked about in practice. We see gospel advancement facing opposition in verses 18 and 19 when Simon Magus declares that he wants to buy the gift of the Spirit. That, by the way, shows us that his belief in the gospel was not true. We see that his heart hasn't changed, that he is rooted still in his own desires. We see gospel advancement requiring clarity in the gospel message in verses 20 through 23 when Peter responds to him. I love what Peter says. How many of you are fans of Peter, by the way? I'm a big fan of Peter because he also is an idiot a lot of the time, but the, and it just gives me such hope. But Peter, what he declares to Simon is gospel clarity. He says, may your silver perish with you. In other words, to hell with your silver and gold, Simon. What you've just declared You think you can obtain the gift of God with money? You have neither part nor lot in this matter. Your heart is not right before the Lord. And I love what Peter does. He doesn't leave it there, right? The mag would have been just totally destroyed if he had left it there. Instead, Peter gives him an opportunity in verse 22, repent. Repent, Simon Magus. Repent of this sin that you're holding on to. He responds in force, but he gives him a warning that when he does respond to this opposition, that he will either perish or repent. The choice is Simon Magus's. And then we see the third evidence of gospel advancement being lives filled with the Holy Spirit in verse 25, when Peter, John, and Philip leave Samaria, and as they travel back to Jerusalem, they proclaim the gospel message to many villages as they go. So we see these three advances in the first part of our text. And then in the second part of our text, we see these three advances taking place in the early church. So as we land the plane this morning, we're presented with three questions. And three questions for you, community, are simply this. How do you respond to those who oppose the gospel? Gospel advances will always face opposition. How do you respond? Gospel advances require clarity in the gospel message, what are you preaching? What is it that falls upon your lips each and every day? How are you using the platform God's given you? And finally, gospel advances are evidenced by lives filled with the Holy Spirit. What are you filling your life with? What is it? The truth is, is that the gospel is still advancing in Michiana today. And the level to which it advances in your community in your school, in your family, in your neighborhood, the level to which the gospel advances is dependent upon your answers to those three questions. So remember how it all started. It all started with the simple idea that at the center is 120 faithful disciples that are being obedient to what Jesus has commanded in Acts 1.8. Let me ask you, if you put yourself at the center, if you put yourself at the center, how is the gospel advancing? Is the gospel getting just past that first circle? Just past your family, just past your neighbors? Is the gospel progressing and advancing into your workplace, into your community, into your friend groups? Is the gospel going out from this place on a Sunday morning and impacting Edwardsburg, Niles, Cassopolis, Michiana? 
Are you praying that the Lord would give you a heart for the world? I hope so. The level to which the gospel advances in your life is dependent upon how you respond to those who oppose it, what you preach, and what you fill your life with. Can I pray for you? Father, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for this church. Thank you for your word that we're able to look at it and see the beauty and the clarity that it gives us. Thank you, Father, that you give us an opportunity to respond in beauty and grace and truth. We can repent and come to you even now. So, Father, I pray that as we have gathered together this morning, that our hearts would be challenged, that you, Father, would use your word to change us this week. And, Lord, we love you. So it's to you, Father, we pray in the name of your Son, to the power of your Spirit. Amen. Today's message was brought to you by a guest speaker at Community Church in Edwardsburg. For more information about the church, you can visit our website, edwardsburg.church. You may also contact the church via email, info at edwardsburg.church, or call us at 269-663-2648. Thank you for listening.